0: John 17. We looked at the first seven verses this morning. We'll finish the chapter this evening, Lord willing. Title of the message in this part two, The Divine Source of Discipleship. You know, it's one of those interesting truths of life that whenever you're dealing with human personality and character, there really is no cookie-cutter process, no... ABC formula by which something can be taught. Just this morning, we were, I, I was preaching and after the service, uh, Cheryl Schmidt, Schmidt and I were talking and every time I have a more illustration heavy message, she comes up to me and she tells me how much my illustrations helped her. And I'm not a very illustration oriented guy. I don't think in illustrations, I think in objective thoughts, facts. Uh, so, so when, when I preach and when I put my sermons together, I often don't think about illustrations. I think about words. I think about definitions. I think about sequences. I think about those sorts of things, but I don't think, let's illustrate this concept. Well, I know from my preaching classes way back when in school that I need to be, be putting illustrations together, and Cheryl Smith is one of those reasons why. Because she comes up to me every time and she says, you know, it really helped me when you put those illustrations in. And I'll have people that, when I use overheads, they say, you know, it really helped me that you put that map up on the screen. It really helped me that I could see visually what you were talking about. Everyone learns differently. There are no real cookie-cutter people in that regard. God has made us each unique, different learning styles, different propensities, different thought processes, right brain versus left brain people. But you know, for all the ways that we are different, there are many things that are similar as well. One of those things is that, by and large, we can all learn. There is no lost cause among us. There is no man, there is no woman, there is no child in this room. And most likely, under the sound of my voice, if you're listening on the internet or whatever the case may be, who is personally incapable of understanding and living out the teachings of God's Word in their lives. As we talked about discipleship this morning, we looked at two of six steps in a discipleship process, and both of those had to do with the ideas of living, uh, hearing and living. We know that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Obedience to the Word of God as we live out God's Word, and then manifesting God's Word to the people around us. We're going to continue this evening with four more steps in that process. Obedience was the first one. Reflection, the second. We'll get four more this evening. And the next one that we're going to look at, beginning in verse 8, we're just going to jump right in because we've got lots to cover, is instruction. Obedience, we read the Word of God, we understand God's will, and we submit ourselves to it. Then we live it out in our lives. We reflect the Word of God, we become a reflection of Christ's light in our lives so that as we are obeying God, as we are doing what He's called us to do, others are seeing our good works, according to Matthew chapter 5, and glorifying our God which is in heaven. Well, then there's instruction. Jesus Christ is praying for His disciples in John 17. We looked at that this morning. He told God that He's fulfilled God's will for Him, that it is now His Time to be glorified in order that he may glorify God, that he has manifested God's name to the men that he has given to him. Now look with me in verses 8 through 10. He says, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine and I am glorified in them. So the third step along this road of discipleship, that definition, discipleship being taking a person from where they are in their relationship with Jesus Christ to where Jesus Christ, through the Word of God, desires them to be. As we are living out this process, as we are helping others to go along the road of this process in their own lives, the next step that we see in Jesus Christ's example, at least, is instruction. While it is our actions, our works, according to the book of James, as we saw this morning, that are the visible manifestation of our faith, knowledge is the heartbeat of our faith. Let me say that again. While the works that we do, the way that we live our lives is the visible manifestation of our faith, knowledge is the heartbeat of that faith. Let me put it in another way. You cannot demonstrate outwardly what isn't already inward. Jesus denounced his own generation in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, saying this, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. You know, something doesn't come out of a man that wasn't put in him to begin with. The question is then, how can a man or woman properly demonstrate the works of Jesus Christ? We heard the necessity of obedience. We heard this morning about the necessity of living out our faith. How can we live out that faith without knowing who Jesus Christ is? and what he expects from us. It stands to reckon then, that while our works will be the most visible, and perhaps in many cases the most effective means by which we show others the person and work of Jesus Christ, instruction is the means by which we learn and we teach what we are expected to demonstrate, and how we are expected to demonstrate it. Look with me again in verse 8. He says, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee and they have believed that thou didst send me. As Jesus continues his prayer and as he recounts the finished work that the father has called him to do, part of that work was to give his followers the words which the father had given him. The father has words which he desires mankind to hear. Jesus Christ was the express image of God. He declared God, John tells us. The declaration of God to men, he's the word of God incarnate. And so he says in verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. He prays for them for his disciples. Now, why is it that Jesus is praying specifically for these disciples? Why is it that he says, I don't pray for the world right now, I'm praying specifically for these men? Well, we'll find out more as we continue through the prayer as to exactly why it is. But it seems apparent that Jesus' manifestation of the Father and his instruction concerning the words of the Father are the context within which Jesus is praying for them. He is praying for them within the context of the words that he has given to them. Basically, let me, let me summarize it. Jesus is praying this. God, I've given to you all the words that you gave to me. I've given, I've given to them all the words that you've given to me. Now I pray for them because they have a lot of learning to do. They have a lot of work to do. We talked this morning about the fact that as we've walked through the book of John, particularly through chapters 13 through 17, Jesus Christ specifically instructing his disciples, there may have been a lot of things that we didn't quite understand. It may be a season in your life where some of these things, they just didn't seem all that relevant to you right now. Or maybe it's, it's a time in your life where, where you don't understand the fullest implications of them. And we said, that's okay. Because, you know, when the disciples heard these words, they didn't understand them either. Now, I'm not giving you a free pass for ignorance. But what I'm saying is, we put the things into our minds and into our hearts so that when the time comes for us to learn the lessons, the lessons are ready for us. And we can learn those lessons. We'll come back to this in a moment. We've talked previously about the importance of knowing God. We talked about it in in Sunday school. The importance of knowing God. We've talked about it in our Sunday mornings in the book of Job. The importance of knowing God. And we've said why? Because if we do not properly know God, then we cannot properly manifest Him to the world. We will give people... Remember this morning I talked about a mirror? And a mirror doesn't selectively reflect you. You don't stand in front of a mirror one day and it only shows one half of your body because it, didn't, it just decided it didn't want to reflect the other half on that day. I am never going to stand in a mirror and see a full head of hair on my head. It's just not going to happen. Those days are gone. They used to be there. They're not anymore. The hair is thinning. It's disappearing. It's never going to happen unless there's a great technological breakthrough and I decide to, to go for it in the next some number of years. Probably not going to happen. So I am not going to stand in front of a mirror that, and that mirror show me something that's not there. In the same way, we as reflections of the light of Jesus Christ need to be that mirror. We need to reflect him properly. It is the expectation that we would do so. So while we might say perhaps that the end goal of our discipleship efforts rests in the manner in which we live our lives, it must also be recognized that the manner in which we live our lives is inherently dependent upon the knowledge that we have of God. The heartbeat of our faith. If you don't know God, how can you conform yourself to Him? If you're not conforming yourself to Him, how can you properly reflect Him? If you're not putting who God is into you, how do you expect to get God reflected out of you. Very important. This, not this past Thursday, but the Thursday before on door knocking, I told you I ended up at Robin and Becky's house again for those of you that are familiar with that prayer request. And I was teaching them about Jesus Christ's teachings on the fruit of a man. How he would look at a tree and he'd say, a tree is known by his fruit. That you know what kind of a tree there is by its fruit. And I've given the illustration before. You know, my wife is very good at identifying plants. We'll be walking through the woods and she'll say, oh look, it's a, and she'll look at a leaf and she'll be able to tell me, tell me what kind of a tree or what kind of a plant it is. Far be it from me to understand any of that. I look at leaves and I say, look, they're green. Look, that one has pointy edges and this one's soft. It's kind of round. That one's a little more oblong. I have no idea what any of that means, but it's pretty. It's green. That's, that's me looking at plants. But if I see oranges on a tree, I know it's an orange tree. I've got that down pretty good. If I see apples on a tree, I know it's an apple tree. If I see bananas, I know it's a banana tree. I can, I can handle that. And you know, Jesus Christ says we are known by our fruit. We're not necessarily known by our trappings. A person won't look at me in this suit and say, wow, you must be a good Christian. They might say that, but they'd be incorrectly judging. You can't look at the external man and say, aha. I can tell he's a Christian. But you know, I am known by my fruit. Maybe not by my leaves, but by my fruit. You're known by your fruit. And as I was talking to to Becky and Robin, I pointed to a tomato plant in their yard, and I said, you know, that tomato plant is known by its fruit. You know it's a tomato plant, and you know it's going to put out tomatoes because it is a tomato plant. Well, we are indeed known by our fruit. But you know the fruit that comes out of us is no more than a manifestation of what's been put into us, the knowledge of God. Jesus Christ spent the years of his ministry demonstrating the Father, both in word and in deed, so that when he left, those who remained, that being his disciples, might know God and thus manifest God in their own lives to the world around them. Discipleship begins with obedience. Reflection. Third, instruction. Number four, in verses 11-16, through 16, commission. So you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have determined to submit yourself to the will of God. You have determined to reflect God to the world around you. You have done what is necessary to learn of God through instruction in order that you might know God and so that you might reflect Him properly. And you've been showing others how to do the same. Your children, you've been instructing them in the ways of righteousness so that they can reflect God properly. Your friends, you have been reflecting God in your lives so that they can see God and understand God and as they ask questions, you help them, you instruct them. Your coworkers have said, hey, I've noticed that you don't have the same language I do. I've noticed that you don't you don't get angry at the boss like we don't. You don't talk about him behind his back like we do. I've noticed these things. You're, you're reflecting something different. What's different? And you've been able to, to instruct them in the ways of Jesus Christ. And so you're, you are a disciple. You're making disciples. You're teaching others. People are, are receiving the Lord. They're understanding the Word of God better. Jesus then speaks of commission in verses 11 through 16. Jesus' work was almost finished. In but a few short hours, His earthly ministry would be complete as He gives His life for the sins of the world. As of John 17, we are literally within hours of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. But though Jesus' work was done, the work which was to be done had only just begun. The work was not going to be done by Him but by those whom he had taught. And so Jesus, in verse 11, prays to his Father that God would keep these disciples through his name. He says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. We talked about the concept of God's name this morning. Not just his moniker, but his power. Everything that he is. Jesus Christ says, keep them through thy name. And his specific prayer at the end of verse 11 is that they may be one as the Father and the Son is one. That there would be unity among Christ's servants found in their understanding and their submission to the instruction of Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on. Look at verse 13. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up in verse 12 so that we, we don't lose context. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that being Judas Iscariot. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world." I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He prays that Christ's joy would be fulfilled in them. Now, we've heard this before. How is it, according to Jesus' former teachings, let's, let's work our minds a little bit. Many of you have been here for a while, at least in this series. You've been through some of these chapters, verse, uh, chapters 13 through uh, 16 up to this point. How is it that the disciples' joy would be full? John 1510 and 11 says this. Jesus speaking to his disciples. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. He prays for their joy. A joy that had previously been stated to be rooted in obedience to Christ and abiding in Christ. We've already talked about obedience. The necessity of obedience. And he says here that the joy of the disciple is full when he's abiding, when he's obeying, when he's submitting to the Word of God. He then prays, not that the disciples would be taken out of the world, but that they should be kept from evil. What an interesting prayer request. Jesus Christ is about to be taken out of the world. He has finished the task that God has sent him to do. And now he says, as I pray for my disciples, as I send them forth to continue the work that I have been doing. He says, I don't pray that they'll be removed from the world. I don't pray that they will be taken out of the world. I don't pray that they'll set up little monastic colonies where they're completely separated from the world. I don't pray that they would confine themselves to their own little niches and groups and cliques. He says, I don't pray that they'll be removed from the world. I pray that you would keep them from evil. Verse 14, He says that He has instructed them. He has been a living example for them. He has commissioned them to do the same. And the world has rejected them for it. That's what that word hate means, as the King James Version of our Bible uses it. It's not the idea of loathing necessarily. It's the idea of personal rejection. He says they are in the world, the world has rejected them, but I have sent them, I have taught them. The world will reject the disciple of Jesus Christ because they are not of the world. They don't share the world's priorities. They do not share the world's philosophy. They do not share the world's eternal expectation. But Jesus Christ, just because He doesn't want us to be in the, or of the world, does not mean He doesn't want us in the world. You've heard it before. I hope it's not necessarily trite that we are intended to be in the world, but not of the world. As we hear these words from the mouth of Jesus Christ, there is little doubt here of His expectation. That these men, these 11 men whom he has instructed by word and by deed, will continue the work that he began, will be in the world. Will be actively demonstrating Christ to the world. And as we consider the responsibilities and the opportunities of discipleship, we recognize that this is exactly what we need to be doing as well. It's very easy for us as you learn more about the Word of God, as you understand what God expects, and as we live in such a society as the one in which we live. A society where you can't turn on the television without being bombarded with innuendos, without being bombarded with materialism. A society in which entertainment and amusement is oftentimes not wholesome. It's a temptation for us as God's people to want to stay within these walls. To feel comfortable within these walls. Here we're among people that understand. Here we're among people that, though we're all different and have different thoughts and have different ideas and have different cultural backgrounds and such, we, we see where we're coming from. We appreciate the Word of God. But you know, that's not what God has called us to do. We come on Sundays. Many of us come on Tuesday nights. We're refreshed. We're trained. We're sharpened. We spend our evenings maybe inviting one another to each other's houses to spend time together, and these are all wonderful things. But if we're not in the world, if we are not interacting with unbelievers if we're not out and about being a light in the darkness, then we're not doing what God has called us to do. You know, it can be difficult sometimes to think long term. The world around us encourages us to live in the now. We have a country that's built upon debt whereby our culture has taught us that we spend today knowing that we're simply deferring our problems to future generations, but that's not their problem, not ours, so, you know, what does it matter anyway? But this is not the mindset that God has called us to have exclusively. Certainly we're to live in the now in some senses. In the sense that we do what God has called us to do now, not worrying about tomorrow. Matthew 6, verse 34, Jesus Christ said, Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. There's enough evil, there's enough problems, there's enough difficulties with today for us. We don't need to be worrying about tomorrow. Let God take care of tomorrow, we take care of today. However, these teachings do not expect that we live in today at the expense of tomorrow. Much rather, they expect that we live today in preparation for tomorrow. In Luke 19, Jesus Christ gave a parable. In this parable, there was a nobleman. He was going into a far country to receive a kingdom, after which he would return. We recognize this to be a parable concerning the time between Jesus Christ's First advent, when he came as a man, humbled himself, and became obedient on the cross. And his second advent, the time when he'll come as conqueror and king. The time when he will come to rule and reign in righteousness. And in Luke 19.13, this nobleman comes back and calls his servants. Excuse me, he hasn't come back yet. He, he comes and he calls his servants to them and he gives them each a talent, a pound. And he tells them, occupy till I come. The expectation when he gave these gifts to his servants was that each servant was expected to live every day doing what was necessary for that day, but always in light of the inevitable day when the nobleman would return and take account. So the nobleman goes into a far country, and these men, yes, they lived for the day they were in. They traded they did business they did all of the expectations of that day but always knowing that that nobleman was going to return and could return at any time you know when jesus was upon this earth his days were filled with his personal fulfillment of god's will he did what god was calling him to do trusting god for the next step but Everything he did was done in anticipation of God's final will for him. Everything he did was leading him toward God's complete and perfect will of the cross. And to prepare his disciples for their duty to occupy while he was away. Now as we draw application in our own lives, the responsibility we have is very similar. We live each day faithfully serving Jesus Christ taking no thought for the morrow in the sense of worry and anxiety and fear and care but we are Christ's disciples we're called to disciple others we're called to be a light in the darkness we're called to be busy occupying till he come in order that when our time upon this earth is complete there will be others to carry on the message to the next generation. See, that is what discipleship is all about. We reach our generation, and we train up the next generation to reach their generation. And they train up the next generation to reach their generation. Discipleship. We obey. We reflect. We instruct. But then we commission. We raise up others to carry the torch into the next generation. I thank the Lord for the number of kids we have in this church. There are more young people than there are adults in this room. And these young people have the privilege and the opportunity of carrying the torch of God's Word into the next generation. And that is the duty of the disciple. But, you know, there's also a great duty of the disciplers in this room to help these young people learn what is necessary in order that they may properly, sufficiently obey, reflect, and instruct others, the next generation. The fifth step after commission, completion. Completion. Verses 17 through 23, completion. It is important for any servant of Christ to always keep in mind That discipleship is not an end in and of itself. That learning and doing are not necessarily the end goal of what a disciple is moving toward. Jesus prays for his disciples in verses 17-19 through that God would sanctify them through the truth of his word. This word sanctify literally means to consecrate or to make holy or to set apart. Set them apart, make them holy, make them distinct through thy word. God has sent the Son, the Son has sent his disciples, and the end goal is that they would be set apart, sanctified by the word of God, turned into distinct individuals. But this was not simply Jesus' goal for those that learned directly under him. This was and is the will of God for every generation of disciples. That as the disciples obey, as they reflect, as they instruct, as they commit what they have learned to others, the next generation doing the same, that each generation would be made holy, made set apart by the word of God. Again, Jesus prays in verses 21 and 22 that they would all be one even as the Father and the Son are one. That as each man, each woman, each child is set apart, is sanctified through the Word of God, that they would be then unified through their sanctification. I remind you again, in the world, but not of the world. Not always different. We're not always going to be different than the world around us. But we should always be distinct from the world around us. They may not be able to look at me as I'm walking down the street and say, I see him as a Christian. But when they see the fruit of your actions, they should know. The light should beam. Notice Jesus' summary statement in verse 23. I in them and thou in me That they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that Thou hast sent me and hast loved them as Thou hast loved me. We know the biblical definition of perfect, finished or complete, having all that is required to its nature and kind. Jesus Christ is not praying that they would have sinless perfection, He's praying that they would be complete in their understanding in their confirmation of his character. God's prayer is that we'd all be one. But this oneness is not found through compromise, nor is it found through conformity. It's found through sanctification, the process by which men and women become more like Christ. This church... I pray quite often that, that God would give us a unified church. But that prayer has nothing to do with how we look, has nothing to do with what interests we have. It has everything to do with the mind of Christ. That is the unity that Jesus Christ desired of his disciples. It's not about if we want everyone to come together. We have to compromise. We have to give and take. It's not about if we want everyone to come together, then we have to break everyone into our mold. It's neither of those. Unity comes to the body of Christ as the body of Christ has the mind of Christ. That's what Jesus Christ is praying for. You know, marriage can be a pretty difficult endeavor sometimes. It takes effort, it takes humility, it takes deference, it takes selflessness. My wife and I put much prayer into our marriage, and when we pray for unity, we pray for it this way, that we would draw closer to one another as each one of us draws closer to Christ. And as I pray for this church, that's oftentimes the prayer I make for this church as well, is that we would draw closer to one another as a body of believers as we are drawing closer to Christ. And as I've taught people on this and counseled people on this and as my wife and I think about this concept, we think of it like a triangle. Perhaps you've heard the illustration before. You have the man and the woman and Jesus Christ at the top. Or, as the case may be, the church members and Jesus Christ at the top. On the bottom, we have these people with divergent personalities, divergent plans, divergent methods for life. But at the top, we have the mind of Christ as defined by Philippians 2. Now it's the privilege of each believer to have this mind of Christ. So these two people, both individually and corporately, are pursuing the mind of Christ. Now this does not mean that their personalities are necessarily converging. But as both of their minds take on the mind of Christ, there is inevitable unity. And this is God's plan. And so let me give you the picture of the triangles. One's here, the other's here as they both become Christ-like, as they move closer to Christ, they're moving closer one to another. The mind of Christ. As they lose the mind of Christ, as they pursue themselves in their selfishness, they draw farther apart. My wife and I don't draw farther apart when we find out that we like different things, that we have different interests, Those aren't the things that separate our unity. What separates our unity is when we lose the mind of Christ. When we get selfish. When we begin to follow our way instead of God's way. Likewise, as we both again pursue the mind of Christ, we draw in unity one to another again. It's the same with Christ's disciples. It's the same thing with God's people. That the disciples come together as we pursue the mind of Christ. And though some of us are going to like ice fishing and others aren't, and though some of us are going to enjoy hot dogs and others are going to like hamburgers better, and though we're going to have these divergent personalities, these divergent opinions, these divergent understandings, there will be unity as we all have the mind of Christ. And that's the last, excuse me, we have two more lessons to learn. No, we are on our last lesson. It's the last lesson we have to learn today. It's the lesson about the end goal. It's the lesson about the very end. See, we do these things. We serve together. We would all be perfected, sanctified, complete in Christ until a day. And that is the day when we go home. The day when we're clothed in the likeness of Christ. The day where we no longer have to pursue the mind of Christ because we will be as Christ. Victory. That's our final point, the sixth point in discipleship, the sixth step, the sixth lesson, victory. Verses 24 through 26. Look at them with me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known Thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me and i have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and i in them you know i'm a destination person this is one of those areas where my wife and i are different we we diverge in various personalities now she's a southern girl she grew up in Georgia. I'm a Western guy. I grew up in Colorado. As a matter of fact, when I went to college, one of the things I had determined going to a college in Florida was that I would not marry a Southern girl. That did not work out for me real well. Well, it did work out for me well. I mean, it's great. I, I, I got a wonderful woman. But the, the concept didn't work out for me real well. I, I, I didn't, it didn't, didn't play out the way I thought it would. And you know, I'm a destination person. When my wife and I are hiking in the woods, again, you know, I told you about the leaves. The reason why I don't know what any of them are is because I, I look at a map and I say, we are going from here to here. Let's go. And we don't need to stop and look around. I, I'm, I'm fine just looking at my feet the entire hike. My feet are just as fine as anything else. Let's just get there. This is, we're, I'm a destination person. My wife is not necessarily a destination person. She is one that She'll look around and she'll say, hey, look at that tree. Look at how it's growing. Look at the knobs. It looks so interesting. Look at how dark the bark is. Look at that plant. Look at those leaves. I've never seen them like that before. And so I'm going and she's stopping me and saying, hey, let's, let's take a breath here. Let's look around. When I go for walks, when I go for runs or driving the car or whatever it can be, it is difficult for me oftentimes to enjoy the journey because I'm one of those that's very intent on getting to the destination. Now, I told you my wife is not so. And after my wife and I were married, we began to go hiking together. Having grown up in Colorado, I've done my share of hiking, but Sarah and I just didn't hike the same way. I personally would have no idea what was around me. I wanted to get to the expected end. Sarah knew that the expected end was there. She knew we were going to get there, but she wanted to enjoy the journey. You know, discipleship certainly is a journey. And it's one that we should not discount. We mustn't be so intent on the destination, heaven, that we lose sight of the journey that we're on. We mustn't be so intent on Jesus Christ's sure return, which it is. He will surely return. That we lose sight on what we're to do today. In other words, we shouldn't go sit on top of a hill, sell all our possessions, look up into the heavens, and wait for Jesus Christ to return. We need to be busy on the journey, but we also must not discount the destination. Jesus Christ said, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Jesus desired that in faithfulness to the love which the Father had for the Son, He would faithfully bring His disciples to be with Him in the end, this was the promise of Jesus to his disciples in John 14. You remember that? He said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He says, I'm going, and you're going to be there with me one day. There's a destination. There is victory. We live a life of obedience. We deny the flesh. We live in the Spirit. We deny the world system that demands our loyalty, but we don't make this journey for the sake of the journey. We make this journey with a destination in mind. We do what is required of us now knowing that there is better to come. There's sweeter rest on the other side from our labors. Knowing that The more our talents are multiplied as disciples, the greater our honor will be as sons. The psalmist said this in Psalm 1715. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. He's praying to God. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. The psalmist was living his life, but longing for the day when he'd stand in the presence of God. You know, we look for that day of satisfaction at the end of our labors. Not at the expense of the journey, but we look at it as the fulfillment of our journey, which can sometimes be a long and difficult road. There's an old Negro spiritual that went this way. I am a poor, wearfaring stranger while traveling through this world of woe, yet there's no sickness, toil, nor danger in that bright world to go. I'm going there to see my father. I'm going there no more to Rome. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. I know dark clouds will gather around me. I know my way is rough and steep, but golden fields lie out before me where God's redeemed shall ever sleep. I'm going there to see my mother. She said she'd meet me when I come. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. I'll soon be free from every trial. My body sleep in the churchyard. I'll drop the cross of self-denial and enter on my great reward. I'm going there to see my Savior, to sing His praise forevermore. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. If you were to ask for a template of discipleship, I don't think I could do any better than to Have you read John 17? You know, we don't always think of John 17 this way. I had never really thought of it this way. I always just thought of it as a tremendous example of a prayer and a tremendous encouragement that it was a prayer for me. However, while I do not seek to minimize at all the prayer aspect of John 17, I believe that we have in this prayer in many ways an instruction manual for our efforts upon this earth. Jesus Christ said a disciple is no better than his master. We cannot be better than our Savior. But we certainly can follow in His footsteps. We can obey the will of God in our lives. We can reflect the will of God through our lives. We can teach the will of God through our lips. We can commission others to do the same. We can grow toward that completion that perfection, that sanctification until the day that we all stand together in glory and victory in our heavenly home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this great call unto discipleship. Lord, we talked about much today. Obedience, reflection, instruction, these elements of the disciple's life, commission, completion, victory, the goals that we have in our discipleship as we consider these things this evening. I ask that your Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of those here to apply the truths of God's Word to their lives. We all have strengths and weaknesses. Perhaps there are some in this room who are very good at reflecting the Word of God, but not so much at instructing. Or they're good instructors, but not such good reflectors, or whatever the case may be. Perhaps people have been so busy on the the journey that they've forgotten about the destination, or so busy looking for the destination that they've forgotten about the journey. Father, wherever our hearts are in this room this evening, I ask that your Holy Spirit would apply the Word of God. That we would be well-balanced Christians. That we would be Christians that are uh, doers of the word, not just hearers. That we would be Christians who show our faith by our works. And teach others to do the same. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who had that victory over the grave. Amen.